Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So at this point, our tradition is to go around and introduce ourselves. There might be a couple of people coming in and uh, people asking to introduce themselves. So I'm going to start with myself. My name is Oswaldo. Kevin. Jack. Paul. Larry. Jim. <coughs> Jeff. My name is Mark. My name is Cass. I'm Greg. I'm Harvey. Jay. My name is Joe. <coughs> Peter. John. My name is <coughs> My name is Tim. Okay, so it is my pleasure to. Oh, sorry, Jason. <laughs> you seem uh, all of a sudden uh, you're there. <laughs> I've been looking at you. Sorry about that. So uh, again, it's my my pleasure to introduce uh, Benjamin Young, who's a uh, uh, frequent speaker uh, with us. Uh, he began meditation as part of his spiritual practice uh, when he was in his early twenties, and over the last forty-four years, uh, he's studied many spiritual paths. Forty-nine now. Forty-nine. <laughs> so that. Yeah. Pursued a number of meditation practices, led spiritual retreats, and given spiritual talks. Benjamin traveled to India for two months in 2001 when he and a close friend took monks' vows. Yeah. Uh, he has been practicing a Buddhist form of meditation called Anana, Anapanasati, Anapanasati uh, which is mindfulness uh, in and out for, uh, for the past 20 years. And he's assisting others in developing their spiritual practices as we will today. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> it's always uh, entertaining and stressful to come and talk to people. So <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, the stressfulness will make it more entertaining. So. Um, what I'd like to talk about is what I usually talk about, and that is uh, spiritual practice. Uh-huh. And I usually start by asking how many people have an established spiritual practice. Oh, that's good. How would you define that? <laughs> well, I, in reality, I chose not to. <laughs> I think part of the reason is that there are lots of different potential definitions, and uh, we really have to make it a personal thing. One of the things I like to do in my talks is I like to dialogue, so please, if you have something to say or you have a question, feel free to ask it. Um, One of the things that I'm usually engaged in as part of my spiritual practice is reading. Um, And I typically read some form of spiritual book. Um, Is there anyone else here who sort of does the same thing? I have a pretty large collection. I have about a thousand books, of which I've read about 950. And I sort of looked at it that when I finished, it was time for me to leave. So 
As it works, as it works out, I'm a relatively slow reader. <laughs> and um, I have uh, periodically added books, so it's sort of a, a life-extending thing as well. Um, but I have some books that have hung around for a long time. I don't know if this happens to you, but I've discovered that uh, as I change or evolve, you might say, um, some of the books that I thought might be important ended up not being very important to me, and uh, they got pushed to the back of the shelf. But I'm still committed to reading them. And sometimes it's a real struggle to get through them. Um, <clears throat> the book I'm currently reading is a semi-struggle. And uh, it's a book called God to Man and Man to God. And it was uh, actually, it's the discourses of an Indian teacher named Meher Baba. And he was well known in India and particularly well known because he worked with people who were called masts in India, which is a, a Sufi term. And these are individuals who were considered to be God intoxicated. They didn't function normally. Um, in fact, frequently they needed support to survive. Uh, and he went around sort of accumulating them and providing places where they could receive care. In some cases, um, they were relatively functional. In other cases, they were so dysfunctional that they couldn't tell the difference between dirt or excrement and food, and they ate whatever was available to them. In our culture, they would generally be treated as insane people. In Indian culture, many of them were treated as very spiritual beings. So, in a sense, that's a manifestation of one definition of practice. Mm -hmm. um, he also spent some time in the United States. Now, he passed on in the late 60s. But one of the things he, um, of course, experienced was two world wars because he was born in uh, the 1890s. Um, and I pulled an excerpt from one of the things he had to say because I thought it was relatively relevant to what we're experiencing now. And I usually bring something to read because uh, it gives me a little bit of focus. And he said, as in all critical periods of human history, humanity is now going through the travail of spiritual rebirth. Great forces of destruction seem to be dominant but constructive and creative forces, which will redeem humanity, are also being released. And through the working of the constructive forces, and though the working of the constructive forces is silent, they will bring divine plan to give to the world a fresh dispensation of the eternal truth. The urgent problem with which mankind is faced is to devise ways and means of eliminating the subtle and physical forms of conflict and rivalry in the various spheres of life. Wars are the most obvious among the sources of chaos, but do not in themselves constitute the central problem. They are the external symptoms of inner disorder. Wars and the suffering they bring cannot be avoided by propaganda for peace. If they are to dis disappear, it will be necessary to remove their root cause. Even when military wars are not being waged, Individuals or groups of individuals are constantly engaged in economic or some other form of warfare. And military wars with their cruelty arise when these other causes are active. The root cause of the chaos which precipitates itself in war 
is that people are in the grip of egoism and selfishness, and that they express egoism and self-interest individually as well as collectively. This is the life of illusionary values. To face the truth is to recognize that life is one in and through its many manifestations, and to lose the limiting self in the realization of unity. With the dawn of understanding, the problem of wars would disappear. Wars have to be clearly seen as both unnecessary and unreasonable, so that the immediate problem is recognized as not how to stop wars, but how to wage them spiritually against the attitude of mind responsible for so cruel and painful a state of things. In the light of the truth of the unity of all, cooperative and harmonious life is to be perceived, and the chief task before those who are concerned with the building of human society is to do their utmost to dispel the spiritual ignorance that envelops the mind of humanity. Wars do not arise merely to secure material ends. They are the product of uncritical identification with the narrow interests which are included in that part of the world that is regarded as mine. Material adjustment is only part of the wider problem of establishing spiritual adjustment, but spiritual adjustment requires the elimination of the self, not only from the material spheres of life, but from the intellectual, emotional, and cultural life of man. To understand the problem of humanity as merely the problem of bread is to reduce humanity to the level of animality. Even when man sets himself to the limited task of securing material satisfaction, he can succeed in that attempt only if he has spiritual understanding. Economic adjustment is impossible unless people realize that there can be no effectively planned in cooperative action in economic matters until self-interest gives place to self-giving love. Otherwise, with the best of equipment and efficiency in material spheres, conflict and insufficiency can be avoided. He wrote this, or said this, sometime between 1938 and 1940. But I think that, you know, I, I was uh, sort of thinking about the fact that um, we're bombing a country right now, or we did earlier this week. And I sort of looked at that in relation to the experience that he had 80 years ago and said, gee, in some ways, things haven't really changed a great deal. We're still engaging in the same kinds of activity. And then I decided to really sort of take a look at that from a spiritual perspective in my own life. So how do I react to that? And I decided that I really react as three different people. On one level, I want to win. I want to be successful. I want to destroy. On another level, I want to come to an understanding and insight into what's happening and somehow fix it. And on a third level, I want to feel compassion for the suffering that's being created. And each of those represent a different aspect of who I am. And you might say that at different points, I reside in different aspects of myself. Sometimes I'm embedded in that, in that aspect of I want to win, maybe not particularly in relation to something as violent as this, but certainly in other aspects of my life. I feel that desire. And other times, 
I want to use the intellect as a way of exploring and understanding and expressing my feelings about something. And at other times, I feel pain and suffering for the people or beings, not only people, but animals and other forms of life that exist on the planet that are suffering as a result of this activity. So, which of those is really me? Well, all of them. Does anyone connect with that? A comment about that? Please. I was thinking as you were saying it that the first and third can lead to the second. Combining those two concepts, those two parts of the feeling, that you can come up with an answer. I think culturally, we are taught to sort of avoid the first and third. I think we're sort of taught to live in the second. You know, we live in an analytical culture, even though sometimes it doesn't appear to be that way. Basically, that's the nature of our culture. Science is a pseudo-religion. It's a discipline. And being really self-centered, which is the I want to win, is emphasized at points and discouraged at other points. So sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not. Feeling compassion is sometimes okay and sometimes not. And that's more personal because it's sometimes okay because it gives us an opportunity to express ourselves. And other times it's not so okay because it makes us feel bad. So I think we tend to, in our culture, migrate to the center. And I think that part of the problem is that, and I think you're sort of pointing at that, we really sort of hop between these various places rather than being really open to recognizing that all of them are just different aspects of who and what we are. And we make judgments about them. We say that it's okay to want to win or it's not okay to want to win. We say it's okay to feel compassion or it's not okay. You know? And those judgments get in the way of really experiencing who and what we are to some extent. So at times they need exploration. Uh, several sanghas I've been at in the last five or six years, they've all told the same story about a man in a hole. And Buddha says, if you have only intellect, you won't be able to help him out of the hole. And if you have only compassion, you won't be able to help him out of the hole. You have to have both. So it's about balancing both. He doesn't ever say that the first one you talked about is okay, so I would have to assume that, you know, even though it's a natural instinct for us, that the Buddha didn't think it was very skillful. Yeah, but you see, the interesting thing is that the first one is the whole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> say more about that. Hmm? Can you say more about that? It's, that's what we're stuck in. You know, the, if you sort of view it on the perspective of selfish versus selfless, then selfishness is the, I want to win. And selfless is compassion. 
And the middle is really sort of a balancing act between the two. In a sense, it's not really being in the hole, but yeah, we're still in it. <laughs> so I think you know that maybe he just didn't have to state that mm-hmm. so clearly. <laughs> but he did for me because I didn't get it. Well, I don't <laughs> so you said it to explain it. Yeah, but but that's only my perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and uh, again, everything is my perspective. You know, the uh, the. The, this division is, is just a way of my expressing my own experience. But one of the reasons that I look at spiritual practice is because spiritual practice gives us the opportunity to explore those aspects of ourselves that we don't normally acknowledge or we may not even necessarily be particularly aware of. So it can, in a sense, be very beneficial. Now, you know, my reading is uh, very deliberate. I mean, it's as it, as it works out, I get up in the morning, my house is always cold in the morning because the temperature in my house never gets, except in the summer, it's very warm, but it, in the winter, it's, never, it's about 55 degrees in my house. So the first thing I do is I take a hot bath. Well, the hot bath is where I do all my reading. <laughs> So I get to spend, you know, uh, uh, basically an hour reading in the morning. That's pretty much the extent of my spiritual reading, but it is a practice. I do it every single morning. And um, some of the most amazing things come to me during that period. You know, it's, uh, um, if I could, when I prepare for the talks that I'm going to give, even though I never end up saying what I'm, what I'm preparing. Um, but most of the preparation is done or the ideas surface when I'm taking those hot baths and when I'm doing this kind of reading and it may not specifically be related to what I'm reading and I don't read necessarily to learn I read to stretch stretch my perspectives and a lot of the stuff that I read I don't understand it just doesn't click with me I used to get really upset because I figured that it was important that I understand it. What I've discovered now is maybe age has brought a little bit of wisdom, and that's that it's not so important that I understand everything, but it's nice to occasionally get something out of it. (laughs) And what I get out of it may not necessarily be what was specifically being put into it. So... One of the things I'm going to sprinkle through here is that another one of my practices is that I do a little bit of writing, but I don't write a lot. Um, The reason I don't is because I'm very OCD. I mean very OCD. Everybody know what OCD is? Is there anyone else who has touched by this amazing state of being? (laughs) Some of my best friends. And I didn't. I didn't have a label to put on for a long time. I was talking with my doctor one day, and I um, uh, I realized that uh, I brought this up, and she was. So we were laughing about it. It's kind of an amusing state to be in. It can be very, uh, can produce a lot of dysfunction. Um, In my state, it doesn't. And the 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 pure manifestations are are a form of counting, which is one of the symptoms of OCD. I like to count things, and uh, I count syllables, particularly in word in in sentences. So, who knows? There's a certain um, settledness and comfort 
that arises out of it that's inexplicable. But uh, it makes me feel good. So therefore, I don't hassle it a lot. Uh, uh, when I get stressed, I find that it starts showing up and then I have to deal with it. So um, It does interfere with writing because particularly if you're obsessive and you try to write, um, one paragraph can take you a week to write because you keep changing it around until somehow it's supposed to be perfect and it never seems to get there. So I, I, tend, I took the form of writing, um, uh, a Japanese form of writing called haiku, except I do it in English rather than Japanese since I don't speak Japanese. So I'm going to sprinkle my talk with some of the haikus I've written just uh, to give you an idea of um, what goes on in an OCD mind. <laughs> yeah, it must be endlessly OCD because you have to have a certain number of syllables, right? <laughs> I take a single s sentence, usually a phrase, and I count it until it comes out divisible by five or ten. I don't, I don't know what. I think it must have something to do with fingers and toes, but I've never figured that out. <laughs> Nor have I considered it really important enough to explore in any great detail. <laughs> so I've been writing for roughly 20 years, and these are samplings across the period. And I'm going to give you uh, one now and then. Uh, one of the early ones I wrote and one of my favorites. First of all, my perspective of haiku is that it should describe some occurrence, usually some sort of natural scene, and there should be a spiritual expression of what that scene represents. So usually it's a description and a perspective. So the first one I have says the gnarled old pine mirrored in the mountain lake timelessness in time okay if that doesn't sink in I'll be happy to reread it just let me know spiritual practice is anyone willing to share what's involved in their practice Come on, be bold. Respiration, mindfulness. Despising the breath. What form? Meditation? Daily yeah, sitting? Meditation, yeah. And of course, I try to carry it beyond the cushion. Yeah. Boy, mindfulness beyond the cushion is a challenge. Yeah. It's even a challenge on the cushion. Yeah, yeah. What's your perception of mindfulness? I would say of not only the content and the process of my mind, but also the context and the awareness itself. Anyone else? Contemplation of nature, sometimes in the smallest of scales. Uh, uh, I've always enjoyed gardening, and occasionally I get caught up in that. An ant walking across a leaf and uh, and looking at that uh, small world that's equally as real as the scale of the It's sometimes quite uh, uh, meaningful. Anyone else? Yes. Um, I guess I consider my practice as. Um, 
uh, of, of being a sister of perpetual indulgence is kind of a form of practice in that it starts with putting on makeup and then uh, going out into the world and connecting with my sisters in, in a community. And um, it heightens my awareness of how people perceive me and how I perceive them. And finding ways to connect with people in a way that is somehow outside of everyday experience. And so that for me is kind of a practice. Great, great. A couple of things that you're saying are, are really important. Um, part of the problem is that because we have a structured society, we tend to view things from a structured perspective, which means that when somebody says spiritual practice, we tend to have an immediate definition arise as to what that means. And that's useful in one sense and very destructive in another sense. It takes effort to get in touch with yourself because most of the time we're not abiding in self. We're pretty much abiding in the world around us and everything that's going on. And it, we lose touch with what really works well for us. And we hear what the world is saying should work. So we become engrossed in that, believing that that's what our practice should be. One of the great benefits that people who find a teacher has is that they can provide some level of guidance in how to develop that personalness, how to take these concepts that are floating around in our culture that are called uh, spiritual practice and sift through them and discover those aspects of it that work for us and to not get hung up because we're not necessarily able to do those that don't work for us. See, most people think that they should sit down and meditate and I have a story. Um, I was working with a group that dealt with alcoholism and um, one of the people who was involved was a minister who was an alcoholic and who I thought had sort of what you might call a guru complex. She wanted to be a teacher. So we organized an event for a group of individuals who were in their early stages of stopping drinking within the first week or two. And we all got together and she gave a talk and she was telling people how wonderful meditation was. It's the greatest thing in the world. They were going to just be able to sit down and they were going to have all these wonderful experiences. And I'm sitting there going, God, these people are going to get a surprise because <laughs> as soon as they sit down and try to be with themselves, they're going to confront one of the big issues they have as alcoholics. You know, and it was not a pleasant experience for anyone. <laughs> to watch what was happening to a group of people who thought that they were supposed to have one kind of experience because they were doing something, have a totally different experience. Meditation would not work for them until they reached the point where they were willing to invest some time and energy and be with themselves. You know, I've been sitting for years and years and it took me 20 years to get to the point where I could just sit without fighting with myself. 
without trying to distract myself, without not wanting to be there. And I was fortunate because 20 years of that experience requires stubbornness. And you can develop such bad habits in the practice that you'll never get to the point where you're willing to do it. So I needed a teacher who was willing to point out to me that I wasn't prepared for that. So don't assume that when we talk about practice, that, that may be what we're talking about. It may or may not be. It may or may not work for you. Or the form that it needs to take may be different than what you think it is. A splash in the pond disturbs the mere stillness. Many thoughts from one. That's one of the problems in meditation. You sit down and you have a thought. And it cascades into a series of thoughts. You hear a sound, and all of a sudden you've got a whole series of thoughts revolving around it. And you fight over having thoughts because somehow you believe that that's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to be able to discipline your mind enough so that it's capable of sitting there and not having any thoughts. Well, minds aren't designed to function without thoughts. They're thought machines. So you're going to have to find something else that works for you if you think that the solution is to stop your mind from doing all these things. The mind has to reach the point where it's doing what it's doing because that's the way it wants to be. Not because you're going to force it to be some way. Those are things that a good guide can help you with because you can go to them and say, I'm having this experience, what can I do? And they might be able to help you. If you don't, then you resort to the kinds of things I did, which was you begin to see what other people have said about it and hopefully you discover a piece of information that becomes very useful to you. Does anybody have any comments? Well, just uh, back to your references to reading and your daily practice with that uh, and your writing. Uh, do you attempt to summarize your insights in your writing to summarize some of the reading you've done so that you can refer back to your writing to make sense of the reading? Hmm. I mean, how, how do they relate the reading and the writing? You, we were talking earlier um, before this started uh, about uh, I was saying that I didn't really feel much of a part of things. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the interesting aspects of our culture is that our culture is very focused on obsolescence. Mm -hmm. But it takes us a long time to recognize that we're becoming obsolete as well. And it's an expression of that. The reason is that our lives are based on change. Right? Everything is changing. I look at some of the things that I wrote a long time ago and I'm going, Gee, it's hard to imagine who wrote that because it doesn't sound like me. Because the reality is it wasn't me. It was that other aspect that at some point in the past I call me now. In the future, our culture is sort of evolving all the time. And the center of the culture usually doesn't remain with the elder. So therefore, we're obsolete. And that, sen- that, that 
effect tends to make us feel like we don't necessarily, we're not as attached or connected to the things that are happening as we used to be. It seems like I was in the middle of everything and now I'm sort of on the periphery. That's just the reflection of our culture and the built-in obsolescence that it has for what's going on, at least, again, my perspective. Yes? What did you just touch it there? <laughs> and thank you for saying that, because just this morning as I was driving here, was, I was reflecting on the suffering I create around getting older. And that particular aspect of it is a very important one. Uh -huh. Having been at the center, having been somewhere a mover and a shaker, and now sitting on the periphery and watching things what's going things going on and not really quite understanding what's going on, not even being connected with the tools that are being used to evolve. Right. I'm talking about electronics. And I mean, I, I used to be at the center of that. Uh -huh. Now I'm not, and I don't care anymore. It's, it's even, you know, the interesting thing is it's a little more difficult if you were heavily involved in technology. That's right. Because it's so obvious that it all slips away from you. As, as with everything else. Mm -hmm. Right. You also said something. You talked about having a teacher to support spiritual practice, whatever that is. If you don't have a teacher, then there are other means, books, things to support us. You know, it also occurred to me very strongly that Sankai is extremely important. Absolutely. I've been out of touch with it. That's why I'm here. And uh, there's a... The, the community of brethren is also so important in supporting whatever the practice is. That also is touching me very strongly. Yeah, and in fact, the, the Buddha didn't talk so much about teachers as he talked about good friends mm -hmm. uh, who could be a teacher and frequently are. And then there are those individuals who you know, really have committed their lives to uh, this exploration who can provide different kinds of insight. All of those contribute. But to go back, is that sort of... You know, the reality is that I don't spend a lot of time writing anymore because what I've discovered is that I'm changing all the time. And yeah, it's sort of it's sort of a reminiscence to go back and take a look at it. And sometimes the things I wrote still apply, and sometimes they really don't apply much anymore. So I write this because it's an opportunity for me to express through, and forgive me for saying it, that OCD personality. You know, this is very structured and controlled. It's an opportunity for me to express in a way that feels satisfying. You know, writing in general doesn't feel satisfying because it's so demanding on me. Not that I can't. I'm really an excellent writer. But it's hell <laughs> to do. You know, and, and growing up in the time I did, I felt that I needed to be a creative human being. And the culture said that there are certain ways of expressing that creativity. You know, you could express it through art, or music, or writing, and, or it could be dance, or some form. But you know, somehow to be a complete individual, those were things that we somehow had to find a way of doing. And you know, writing ended up being mine, so I suffered a great deal because it was such a struggle until I found a form that I could let go of 
And finally, let go of the, the belief that somehow I had to do that to be a successful or complete human being. It's not necessary. You know, we're complete. To go back to what you said about your practice, when I look at mindfulness, I think of beingness in the moment. Beingness in the moment is what you talked about. You talked about beingness and in the moment. You see, the only time we're not self-absorbed is when we're in the moment. And at least from my perspective, this whole struggle about enlightened state is finding a way of not always being distracted from being in the moment. So it's what is this, you know, this concept that we're confronted with, this uh, nibbana that the Buddha talked about. Well, that's a difficult one to take on. I think it ends up meaning a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And certainly as you look at spiritual traditions, it means a lot of different things. But one of the things that I've understood is that we all have the opportunity of knowing it if we're really sort of focused a little bit on our lives. And you know, it's one of the things I've actually has been recurring throughout all the talks that I've given throughout my life. And I talk about what I call an unconscious nibbanic experience. Are you saying you're not saying nirvana, right? Nibbana is the Pali. So I, I, I use the Pali version because this is a Buddhist group rather than the, the Sanskrit version, which is nirvana. <laughs> um, unconscious nibbanic experience. Who has had an unconscious nibbanic experience? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> What's the definition? What does nibbana mean? Well, I'll tell you. I'll give you my classic example of an unconscious nirvanic experience. You're driving along the coast and you come to an overlook and see that the sun is about to set. So you immediately pull your car over into this parking area. You get out and you walk over there and you see this glorious sunset. And then all of a sudden you go, I've got to get my camera. <laughs> the unconscious nibbanic experience was prior to wanting to get the camera. It was the oneness of being there and having that experience. It was the loss of self. So, to tie that back in with nibbana, the word itself means to snuff out or extinguish. So what are we snuffing out? What's getting extinguished? My perspective is that's the selfish absorption that we have with everything. And when in a state lacking that absorption, we're cool, we're not heated, we're not grasping. And that represents my perspective of nirvana. 
Anybody? Yeah. Well, uh, I talked about it a little bit before, but uh, I like going to Alamon meetings, and there is a 12-step room for people who are been bothered by uh, the alcohol drinking of others, which puts them in bad habits. They try to get some insight to that. But I just use it as a panacea, spiritual panacea. So, but uh, when I'm there, I really lose uh, my sense of self, and really, I really, I really try to focus on the person who's speaking, and to be there as a compassionate uh, person for them, just by being there. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a lot of times I'd say, oh, I don't want to go to me, I don't have anything to say, and then I realized that wasn't really what it was about. It was like being there for others, because there's a lot of people there, and you can only be there for yourself for three minutes or whatever. So, uh, that's an example of how I, maybe three times a week, do that. And I never thought of it as a practice like you just described until now, where I I go there and I lose my sense of self and I become part of this collective healing uh, that's going on. And I forget about, I forget about myself, unless someone says that something that's very identical to something that I experienced, but that doesn't happen too much that it's identical. So, uh, I mean, I do, you know, I do, I do meditate, I do a modicum of reading, um, in terms of something other the rubric of Buddhism. But uh, I think a stronger spiritual practice is going to those 12-step meetings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, as I said, you know, you really have to find something that you can connect with and works for you and helps you to get out of self-absorption. Mm -hmm. yeah. An opportunity, uh, and it's not necessarily um, just, for example, one can find it in doing service. But I tell you, a lot of people, people can make service very egotistical. Yeah. You know, so there's a, it's an interesting balance you know, that we have to play when we look at it and start you know, using it as a spiritual practice. Um, you know, if, if the only reason you do it is because you feel good, then it's probably not accomplishing everything that it can potentially accomplish. Or if you do it so that you can tell other people that this is how you are, then it's probably not a very beneficial practice because it ends up strengthening those things that you're attempting to really struggle against, mm -hmm. or at least overcome from a spiritual perspective. Okay. The sound of the bell vibrates through the morning mist. Stillness arises. Who here has a belief in God? Who has a belief in no God? <laughs> Does Buddhism offer a belief in God? In the tradition of Buddhism, is there a God? Who knows? It's an absolute. Well, there's God, too, because if you look at the writings, the Buddha talks about how he didn't want to teach, and 
how Brahma appeared before him and said, go teach, because there are those who had less dust in their eyes. So certainly, you know, there is some concept of God there. I think, you know, and one of the things I've talked about before is that we lose track of the fact that Buddhism came out of a religious tradition, which, by the way, happens to have many gods. So the Buddha didn't necessarily abandon the concept of God. It's just that he basically expressed his view <clears throat> that to become involved in a discussion or thought about whether God exists or not was detrimental to one's practice. So he basically refused to answer the question when asked because he didn't think it served any particular purpose. So, looking at it from either side, I have some comments about thinking there is a God or thinking there isn't a God. And about my perception of God, non-God. One of the interesting things about having a God is that it creates some problems for us because it gives us something to relate to which means that we give it a definition. We give it a form. That's a very dangerous thing to do because you might say that it, God is a concept that's undefinable. So by giving it form, we create a problem for ourselves because we limit our view. So, no God is a concept of God, which means you're stuck in exactly the same position. You define something and limit it, and that's not serving, and that's the root of what the Buddha talked about. That's why it's not beneficial to hold either of the views. Yet, both of them can be beneficial if you can find a way of allowing them to serve you. The gods that the Buddha was exposed to, like Brahma and Vishnu, represent an aspect of something greater. In Hindu tradition, you have something called Brahman. And Brahman is everything and nothing. Um, it can't be defined, but it can be pointed at. And it's pointed at as being three words. In uh, Sanskrit, it's sat, chit, ananda, which means being, consciousness, and bliss. It has two aspects. It has the unmanifest, and the manifest. Everything that is, is the manifest, but it's a subset of the unmanifest. So, the manifest is called Saguna Brahman, and the unmanifest is called Naguna Brahman. And in Hindu tradition, gunas represent the three aspects of all substance. These are rajas, tamas, and sattva 
And those are energy versus entropy versus light, which is sort of a balance. So this is the true Hindu perspective of God. If you look at Vishnu or Brahma who talked to the Buddha, those were part of the manifest, which means that when the manifest is reabsorbed by the unmanifest, all of those things disappear. So God is temporary in the Buddhist or in the Hindu perspective. Those were the foundations for Buddhist perspective on God, which arose out of the Hindu perspective. Buddhism didn't arise out of a reaction to deity. It arose out of a reaction true to tradition, to, um, what's the word I want, Harvey? What one does in a tradition, the practice itself. And it was a, a one aspect of the culture, which was the Brahmin aspect. So when I looked at all of that, what I came up with was this Brahma represents consciousness, all-pervading consciousness. And so therefore, for me, God ended up being all-pervading consciousness. So I have a definition of God, but it doesn't fit any of the traditional religious definitions of God, but it works for me. And I could turn around and say, there is no God for me, because what I'm saying is that all the traditional views of God don't fit and have no application for me. But I grew up in a culture which was based on a deity. We live in a Christian culture, no matter what we do. It permeates everything we do. And most of us went through some sort of education which imbued us with certain traditions, and one of those traditions was one of God. So what I'm suggesting is not to either be drawn into the tradition where you cling to something, or rebel against the tradition where you're trying to get rid of something, because both of those things prevent you from really sort of abiding, being in the moment. So let go of it and recognize that you can be whatever you choose the definition to be, that you don't have to go out and accept someone else's. And the same is with practice. Make it personal. Because once it becomes personal, it's something that becomes of value and abuse to you. Okay? Does that make any sense? I usually push people's buttons with this sort of thing, but, you know... <laughs> it's okay. I live in San Jose, and it's a long way away. <laughs> Nobody knows where I live. <laughs> Does any? Yeah. I don't know if I agree with your thought about uh, not believing in God having some sort of need to deal with the concept of God, because it's the people who believe in God in some form or some concept that make the definition and for themselves. But if I just say I disagree, not that it's different from what you say, it's just that I don't agree. I don't need any idea or dependence on the concept of the God they come up with. Yeah, the, but the way the brain works is to develop concepts. But to say I deny, I don't believe it, I don't need a concept. But you see, because I'm not looking for a replacement. No, I understand. But by saying you don't believe, you already have a concept. See, belief, disbelief are concepts. They're ideas. They're just the way we work. At some point, this whole idea of being in touch with a deity involves letting go and being somewhere beyond concept, and that's a very difficult thing for us to do because we work in concept. 
And again, it's just my perspective. They have an interesting phone ring. Stranger things Before my altar, kneeling in meditation, no past, no future. The form of haiku is five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second, and five in the third. And it always takes that form. So it, it's kind of interesting because you have to really be careful about how you sort of structure the words you're using. And frequently I read the things and I don't necessarily understand what I was trying to say. <laughs> But I know that at some point it had a feeling for me. And sometimes it comes back and sometimes it doesn't. Ah, to sit again. The rebel mind surrenders. Peace and harmony. All-pervading consciousness manifests in form, an awakened mind. And then the last one I wrote just recently is a little bit different. It's sort of one of my favorites. It says, my mind is ablaze, obsessive and compulsive, grasping and clinging. Obsession is, uh, you know, is, is part of the way a brain works, um, and there's a great advantage to being obsessive because you keep feeling like you do things, but it's not necessarily you doing them. <laughs> and the reason that's beneficial is because it helps us to understand that we're not our brains that the brains are just a form manifested that we utilize for experience. So we're something else. And when you find yourself habitually doing things that you may get tired of or may not want to do but still continue to do those, like addictive behavior, which is an aspect of compulsive behavior, you begin to realize that you transcend those things. And that if you can understand that transcendence, then they don't tend to be as burdensome, but they don't necessarily go away either. Learning how to live with yourself, how to take advantage of those aspects of you that may be difficult, are all great teachings and are of great benefit to your spiritual practice if you learn how to utilize them effectively. Thank you. Well, thank you. So we have uh, any announcements? Yes. <laughs> Here's a flyer. There's some left here in two weeks, um, Friday and Saturday. Um, uh, the 27th and 28th of this month. Um, the San Francisco Society is performing at St. Ignatius. 
a gorgeous space for music. Um, uh, Rachmaninoff's um, Vespers is an all-night visual, and it's among the most uh, glorious choral music of the 20th century. And it's internal. And if you've ever known what the cloud of unknowing is, which is a concept of mystic literature about the upswelling of feelings. This music is all about that. And it's, um, it's unlike anything I know, and it's absolutely glorious. And I highly recommend it. And there's some flyers out there. So that's in two weeks. Great, thank you. Oswaldo, to follow that up, in three weeks, only a men's chorus is going to have a concert called Anthem, and it's uh, several languages and um, fun anthems and serious anthems, emotional anthems, um, and we're also singing with the San Francisco Boys Chorus. And where is that going to be? Done? That's going to be Mission Dolores, and I'll have some literature next weekend. Which Mission Dolores. Another great venue, though. I'm going to for that, too. Um, I'm the host. There's um, bigger food outside, um, water for tea, sign up sheet for new people. Um, and uh, next week's, uh, we're going to have a Dharma duo, which is always an interesting uh, event that we have, uh, where a couple of us uh, give uh, spend their time in the talks. And uh, it will be uh, Hal Hershey, uh, who, well, it's a long description of both of them, but you know. Uh, he's uh, encountered the Dharma in a philosophy course in college, has danced with the Buddha on many paths, uh, and uh, he learned Zazen in San Francisco Zen Center in 1966. I think it goes back a while after that. Worked on books with Jonathan Trumpa at Shambhala Publications during the 1970s, and found the Gay Buddhist Fellowship in 1999 for a uh, He's been uh, a key member of our Sangha. Uh, and the other person is Jonathan, who moved to the Bay Area in 1980 to attend the UC Berkeley, where he left the study of forestry for social work. A little addendum here, he couldn't see the people for the trees. <laughs> he worked largely uh, in the LGBTQI community as a geropsychiatrist. I guess we're working with older people, uh, a disability widowhood and cumulative bereavement and, and so forth. Uh, he, uh, well, uh, stay tuned. Uh, come next <laughs> And I just wanted to add a personal note. Uh, as many of you know, I'm going to be moving to Santa Fe in a few weeks. I've been uh, facilitating the third week of the month every month for quite every, for the last few years. At least and, I at least five, right? You know, I can uh, lost count, but I've been coming to GDF uh, uh, for longer than that. And, uh, you know, in, a, in about four more weeks, I'll be leaving town, and uh, I'll be missing you guys. So I'll try to take every opportunity to come back. And hopefully for the next retreat in October, it will be a good uh, opportunity to kind of reconnect with all of you. So I uh, thank you. Okay, so uh, no announcements, and we'll do the dedication of merit.
By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.